Good morning. We are going through 1 Samuel. Have you guys read 1 Samuel a little bit? Uh, are, you guys, are you guys currently doing David and Goliath? That's a different group. I think that's the younger kids. Okay. Um, well, we're going to get there. Not today, uh, but eventually we will get there. And today we're talking about Saul. So since I have an audience that has not been in here uh, uh, too much previously, I will rewind and talk about exactly what we're talking about in the Bible. So, patriarchs. Who knows who the patriarchs of the Old Testament are? Don't be shy. Patriarchs. Abraham. Abraham. Moses. Isaac. Jacob. Moses can be considered a patriarch. So, patriarch, meaning the fathers or the, the fathers of Israel or the nation of Israel, lived 2000 BC, give or take. That's a long time ago. That's 2,000 years ago to Jesus plus another 2,000 years to the patriarchs. That's 4,000 years ago. So that's, that's a chunk of change there. <clears throat> the fathers of Israel, the nation of Israel, lived around 2,000 BC. And then as you remember, uh, there, there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, uh, uh, Jacob's son. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph's family moved to Egypt. And when, when that happened, the nation of Israel, some 70 people, moved to Egypt with them, and they stayed there for over 400 years. What happened at the end of that? They had a big party. Uh-huh. It was a real fun time, wasn't it? They felt enslaved. They felt enslaved. And they cried out to God for what? Deliverance. Deliverance, and they were delivered. And God raised up Moses, the greatest prophet uh, of the Old Testament, to lead them out of Egypt into the Promised Land. What is the Promised Land? Someone from that table. I know. I, this is. I'm asking these questions on purpose. Don't be shy. You know the answers. Just say them. What is the Promised Land? Starts with an I. Israel. Israel, very good. See, I knew you guys were smart. I knew you guys were smart. Now, this is my horrible rendition of the nation of Israel. So just imagine, this is the Mediterranean Sea. You guys have all seen a map before, right? So Mediterranean Sea, Egypt would be down here. The modern nation of Turkey would be up here. And here, in this little sliver of land, is where the Israelites settle. So they come in, actually, from the east into this land that's called Canaan, okay? Now, was Canaan empty when the Israelites showed up? No. Who was there? The Philistines? Philistines, that's one group, very good. There, there was Philistines, and actually, I've, I've put the answers on here in parentheses. So we have Edomites, we have a lot of ites. Edomites, <laughs> Moabites, Ammonites. Ammonites. And we have uh, the, the nation of Aram or Syria, the kingdom of Syria up here. And so you have all these different people that are already living in Canaan where the Israelites show up. <clears throat> now, for the next 400 years, we have this period called the period of the judges. It's not an accident that this happens after Exodus. So what are the books of the, of the first five books of the Old Testament? Say it with me. Genesis. Genesis Exodus. Leviticus. Numbers. Deuteronomy. You guys are so smart. And I, I only had to say the first one. <laughs> then after Deuteronomy comes what? Joshua. 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 Judges. You guys are so smart. So the period of the judges, again, almost four, over 400 years in which 
How many tribes are there in Israel in the past? <clears throat> 12. See, I, I heart you. You're so smart. <laughs> you know the answers. 12 tribes. And, and the, this is the whole point of the book of Samuel. This is why we're here today. Is that <clears throat> things did not work out so well with those 12 tribes. Why? Because there was all kinds of problems going on in Israel during the period of the judges. There was economic instability. People were poor. The crops were lost. There was military fighting. There was constant fighting of the Israelites with their neighbors. And you can see that here because we have all these different people that are not Israelites who are living with Israelites. And there's, there's a lot of conflict. The primary conflict comes in their religion. The Israelites, unlike any other civilization in antiquity, and I say that Egypt does not count because it was not sustained, believed in something very radical about God. What was that that no other nation on earth believed? That there was only one true God. There is only one God of the universe. There is no other God. Why is that weird? Because, and this is weird for us today, because most... Most Westerners don't, don't think about this. In the East, it's still common to believe that there are many gods. It's called polytheism. This was the rule in antiquity. People believed there were many gods. There were local gods. There were, there were uh, worldwide gods. There were gods of every kind of aspect of nature, so of storms, <clears throat> of the sun, of the moon, of the earth, of fertility, um, of volcanoes even. You basically had a god for everything, and there were even local gods within all these regions. Now, these Israelites show up out of nowhere, and they start to profess this fact that there is only one god, a creator god, named Yahweh or Jehovah, Jehovah. And he is the only god. That causes a lot of strife with their neighbors. So you have all these tensions over this period of the judges, and the big piece here is this, that God during this period is saying, you don't need a king. Who's your king? God. I'm your king. If you believe in me as God of the universe, you have nothing to worry about. Bree, you have nothing to worry about. Emma, you have nothing to worry about. Just come to me if you ever have a problem. And in fact, the book of Judges shows that when things get rough and the people of Israel are down and out and they have sinned and they have done wrong, God reminds them, when you repented and you admitted you were wrong and you came back to me, what did God do for them? He bailed them out. He bailed them out. He helped them. He came to the rescue and he raised up these people called judges to save them. And most of the time, that was a military leader. A person who would come in and say, the Philistines are knocking at your door. Bam, we'll crush them. Problem solved. Go back to living your lives and, and doing your thing. But then the problem is they would continually fall away over and over again. So we get to the time of Samuel, the last judge of Israel. And the people are crying out, we want a king. We want a king. And God's saying, you don't need a king. You don't need a king. Right? Now, why also were they asking for a king? And for those of you who have been here, you might know the answer. Everyone else had a king. Everyone else had a king. Now, when I say everyone else, I mean the Egyptians had a pharaoh. Um, before this, the Mycenaeans and the, and the Hittites, they all had very powerful kingdoms. We have the Assyrian kingdom over here. We have the Babylonian <coughs> kingdom over here. 
they have a strong central king who is in charge of everything. He is in charge of the economy. He's in charge of the military. He's in charge of foreign relations. He's in charge of the religion. And what are these Israelites doing? They're looking at these people saying, things are so great for those guys. We want some of that. Because things really kind of suck in, in Israel right now. And God keeps telling them, they don't have it better. They don't have it better. They've actually got it much worse. You just don't even realize it. But what do the people keep saying? We want a king. Shut up. We want a king. <laughs> so God has finally decided to relent. And that's what brings us here to, uh, to 1 Samuel. And today we're talking chapters 11 and 12, where the people have finally kind of pushed God to the point where he's like, fine. And, and in fact, the title of our last class was, Be Careful What You Ask For. Why? You just might get it. And this is really important, especially for the young folks here today, that God does have a plan for you, and he has a plan for your life. And sometimes that plan does not jive with what you think that plan should be. Oh, God, I've got this all figured out. If you would just do the following things, and I'll write them down for you, then I'll be good, and you'll be good, and we'll all be square. And sometimes God looks at that list and goes, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. Rip right? It's like <clears throat> Luke Skywalker with the lightsaber in that really bad movie. Flips it over his hand. So God has decided to give them a king. Who is the anointed first king of Israel? Say it loud. Saul. Very good. See, and I wrote it up here. I mean, come on. I'm, I'm just basically lobbing these softballs to you. All you have to do is swing. Saul is the anointed first king of Israel. Let's talk about what kind of man Saul is. Now, I want you to just to really quickly recap how we got here. Right before chapter 11, Samuel, the last judge of Israel, has gone to Saul in secret and told him, this guy who was just farming with his dad a week ago and who was just on this journey to go find some donkeys that went missing, runs into Samuel, and Samuel goes, um, can you come to the, to the um, uh, upstairs with me for a minute? I just, we just need to chat. And Saul's like, okay. They go upstairs, and Samuel goes, I'm going to anoint you as the first king of Israel. <laughs> now, what do you think Saul was thinking when he heard that? <laughs> Say it. You're drunk. You're drunk. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. You're crazy. I'm overwhelmed. What's wrong with you? I'm just supposed to find these donkeys and get them back to my dad. Dude, I don't. I no. I think you're talking about a different guy. I'm just here for some donkeys, man, and I'll be gone, and everything's good. Thing is, he doesn't relent. He doesn't give up, and so now the the pressure is building, and and Samuel anoints Saul with oil on his head, saying, "You are the anointed one. You are the anointed king of Israel." And now I want you to think about that because Saul is having a lot of questions about what's actually going on here. The people of Israel, how do you think the people of Israel might respond to this whole thing? Who's this guy? Who is this guy? You just told me Saul was this guy who was farming some land who was a nobody from just north of Jabus, which will become Jerusalem. He's just some backwater hick. Now, if you're going to appoint a king for us, who should be a king? A warrior. A warrior. A warrior. Who else? Somebody already in power. A somebody. A somebody who's already somebody. 
and you picked this guy seemingly from obscurity. Now, when we say we picked, who picked Saul as the first king of Israel? God. God Almighty. And there's a reason for that. I'm sure Let's, the, they were very fractured into very, you know, their tribal yeah. alliances. You mm-hmm. know, so I'm sure each tribe was like, well, the king should come from my tribe, you know, like. Yes, yes, yes. So let's, let's read this. So right before chapter 11, Saul was made king. This is around 1020 BC. And when Samuel anoints Saul as king, he makes a very clear statement. Now, let's be clear. Samuel was not really in favor of this. Samuel, being the God-fearing man he was, said, I do believe that you, Jehovah, are king of the universe, and we don't need a king. So Samuel is not for this. Let's not make any mistake about this. Samuel is not in favor of a king. When he finally does anoint Saul in a public place, he makes the comment that God is going to anoint a king for you, but you are going to have a crappy life. Your sons and daughters are going to become enslaved by the king. You're going to give all of your money and taxes to the king. He's going to take your people away to go fight battles, and they're going to die for the king. And there's going to be rampant corruption. Still want a king? We want a king! It's like, did you people hear anything I was telling you? (laughs) But he's like, fine, I'll give you a king. But God, God makes the comment, you should have followed me. I'm going to give you what you asked for because you won't stop pestering me about it. But you're going to learn why you should never have asked for one in the first place. And eventually it's not going to work out so well for you. With that being said, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 11. And we'll read the whole thing. We'll read 1 to 15. Who can read that for me? I could do it. You are all such good volunteers. Even with all the big names here at the beginning. What's it? I know, right? Yes. All right. Let's start on the right this time. You wanna, did you say you would? Oh, Steve said. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Well, could you read it into one of the microphones for me then? Thanks. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What's wrong with the people? They told them the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were there were three hundred thousand, and the men of Judah thirty thousand. And they said to the messengers who had come, 
Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Thank you, sir. This is, this is remarkable, and I want you to remember um, something from the past and think about what's going to happen in the future. In the past, when the Israelites were challenged with their neighbors, they would cry out to God for salvation, and God would anoint a judge or leader to basically come in in a military fashion and lead the military into a battle that would defeat their enemies. This happened many times, and, and um, in fact, in the next chapter, we're going to hear about some of those, those famous names. <clears throat> the Ammonites. Look, they're one of the ites, Right? Let's see where this is. Gilead, okay, here we have, this is, this is the Sea of Galilee, what will be called the Sea of Galilee in 2,000 years. This is the Dead Sea. This is the Jordan River, okay? This is where all of the different tribes of Israel have gotten their allotted portion. So each tribe has a spot of land that they call their area, and they live there. So the 12 different tribes spread around. I've underlined some of them. Um, so we have Manasseh, Ephraim, Benjamin, Judah, we have, Gil, uh, we have Gad, and we have Reuben. In Gad, there's this little town called Gilead. So it's on the other side of the Jordan. And of course, as you can see here, it's right next to Ammon. In the book of the Judges, there is a history with the Ammonites. And uh, Jephthah, one of the judges of Israel, went out and battled the Ammonites and defeated them. So there is bad blood here, where the Ammonites are continuing to contest this area on this side of the Jordan. And Gilead, unfortunately, is getting caught right in the middle of all of this. Maybe it was 90 years earlier. No one's really sure exactly how long. It was a few years before this that the Ammonites were defeated. They never forgot. And probably they're looking at this turmoil in Israel right now and the problems with the people and they're, they're complaining about their government. They probably saw this as an opportunity to attack and say, the Israelites are all busy trying to figure out what's going on with their leadership, what's going on with their economy. Let's take this moment while they're distracted and let's go bash the heck out of this Gilead town and take it over. This may have been one of the impetuses for the Israelites, paradoxically, to anoint a king because they see now the Ammonites continuing to press them in an area where they have won in the past. The Israelites are looking at this like, we gotta get this going. We gotta get Saul anointed, we gotta get Saul out there. What you can see here is one of the very first things that Saul does after being anointed is lead a battle. Lead a battle. And what do you notice? This is so interesting. Oh, by the way, Nahash means serpent. 
What do you notice when, they, when the people cry out? Who did they cry out for? Did they send a messenger to Saul? Saul, come save us? Who, who did they cry out to? Someone who will deliver us. Everyone else. Oh. They're like, uh, yeah, I know this guy Saul has been made king, but hey, anyone else going to help us? <laughs> so, so I think you should take that as a very strong clue that the people of Israel were still not totally sold on the idea that Saul himself was supposed to be their king. And what do you notice about what Saul was doing himself? So the people aren't really seeing Saul as a king. What, what was Saul's perspective on this? Verse 5, just then... Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen. He's the king of Israel. <laughs> He's out doing farmer stuff. He went back to the farm. He's like, oh, you want me to be king? Okay, great. Yeah, I'll do that. What's that over there? And he runs over and he starts doing his plowing again. For those of you who have never been a king or driven a tractor, I mean, seriously, it's kind of a cool thing. <laughs> I would see tractors. If he had a John Deere 9000. Uh, he didn't have a tractor. Let's, he was yeah. cool. <laughs> if, if you've ever seen someone, and it, it's so funny because we just watched the movie Josie Wales um, uh, with Clint Eastwood, and in the very beginning, Josie Wales is uh, plowing his field <coughs> with a horse, not an ox, but he's plowing it with a beast of burden, and he's got the wooden plow with the metal, you know, uh, you know, uh, slicey thing in it, and he's, <laughs> he's going through the field, and it looks like hell. <laughs> it looks like the hardest job you've ever seen because he's got to keep this thing in. He's got to keep the animal moving. He's got to plow in a straight line. Um, it probably breaks every five seconds. This is, this is not fun. And so you can totally see here, Saul is like, he just went right back to his life as if, oh, okay, I'm king. That's great. I'm going to go. You know, I got some planting to do. But what happens? What happens in verse 6? The Holy Spirit rushes on him. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, came upon him. Came upon him what? Greatly. Say the last part. Greatly. What is your What does your translation say? The Spirit of God came upon him in power. Dude, I don't know about you, but if the Spirit of God comes on in power in someone, watch out. <laughs> watch out. Maybe your translation is a little different. Especially if you're a cow. <laughs> this is a great point. This is a great point. I think this is Brian Freeman's interpretation. So as you'll learn, Brian Freeman has all of the right answers. Um, uh, my interpretation is this. God is seeing what Saul is doing, that Saul is trying to get away from this whole thing. God has decided that Saul is king, but Saul has decided to go back to farming. What does God do here to make sure that he gets the message that farming isn't what you're supposed to be doing anymore. Gets rid of his implements. He gets rid of his ox. He has him kill his oxen. This is like burning the ships in the Caribbean so the the you know the Spaniards can't go back to the old world. We're here guys, I'm burning our ships. Uh, we gotta stay. There's no turning back. He has him kill his oxes, his oxen. What else do you notice here? So, so yeah. Uh, go ahead. Fighting style is very interesting. Yeah. Like I feel like now we would we just would keep pressing until we demolished our enemy, right? Yeah. But like they get to a certain point and then they're like, "Give us seven days," and they're like, "Okay, we'll give you seven days to go get more people to try and defeat us instead of just mm -hmm. finishing them off." 
you know? Mm -hmm. like, okay. What does that tell you about what the Ammonites thought about their chances for victory? This is kind of interesting. Well, it could be a couple things. Yeah. Number one, it could be that the Ammonites weren't prepared to carry out a siege on yes. the city, which could yep. take months. Yes. So yep. There's that factor, and then there's also they probably doubted that anybody would come to their yep. rescue. So you sure you can have your seven days. We expect you to come back. Nobody's going to help you, and you're going to surrender. We get saved having to go through the siege. You yep. get, you know, whatever we want we, to do. We also find out in the next chapter that it was harvest time. Yes. So they may have had some other work that they needed. This is all great. You guys are all right onto it. And this is what I like to, you know, for the young people in here today, what you should do is try to avoid reading the Bible at a surface level. Ask yourself questions about why... Why am I reading what I'm reading? And, and what, what makes sense here? Why would an enemy come up to the gates of a city and try and bargain? And I think as you logically reason some of this out, I think you're all onto the right track. No matter what happens, these are human beings. Maybe they wanted the, that town to get their weed harvested too. And do I mean, it for them. What are we going to take over and then uh, now we got to right. harvest their weed? Now we got to do all their harvesting. <laughs> that. Yeah, and we don't want to burn it because why? Why in antiquity do you take over territory? For the resources. For the resources. You've got all this beautiful, gleaming, golden wheat sitting ready to be harvested around May, June, uh, you know, early summer. Why should I go out and do all this hard work? And remember, early summer in Israel is like 120. Uh, look, it's not like Iowa. You think it's hot in Iowa. This is, this is a whole different ball of wax here. I don't understand, though, people who are willing to walk out there and lose an eye. <laughs> Seven days, 14 days, it doesn't matter. You're going to have to come and take mine. Yeah, but what, let's I reason that care. out. Let's reason that out because were they, do you think they really were willing to do that? Maybe. But I also think they might have been trying to buy time. They're like, well, if it's between losing an eye or it's between maybe someone will come to our rescue, let's throw the mm -hmm. dice. It could well, be. Well, sure. I mean, they're, they're clearly buying time, yeah. right? But they're also clearly willing to walk out there and let it happen. Mm -hmm. well, they did I just don't get that. You know, it's interesting because this is, this is one of those cases. How many people have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Raise your hand if you've heard of them. Okay. Okay, good. I'll teach you about that today. <laughs> in the 1940s, in the region of the Dead Sea, not surprisingly, <coughs> this is the Dead Sea right here. This is a desert region. There is almost no rain that falls in this valley of the Dead Sea. Um, some shepherd boys were throwing rocks into caves that were high up, very high up on the hills that, that was very hard to get to. And they were trying to see if they could throw their rock and get it into the hole. It's like playing basketball. When one of the kids threw the rock, they heard a crash and they're like, what was that? It sounded like pottery. So these little kids who were much uh, more limber and strong than any of us climbed up the sheer face of this rock and look in and what did they find? They found a room full of thousands of jars of scrolls. Can I just tell you right now how immense this find was? It turns out after a few years of searching there were there were at least a dozen caves in this region of the Dead Sea in which thousands of jars of scrolls from 2,000 years ago were stored. And because the climate was so dry, 
those were preserved. I mean, they were preserved as well as you can imagine. A scroll can be over 2,000 years. But over the past you know, 60, 70 years, scholars have slowly been taking those scrolls, pulling them apart, x-raying them, photographing them. They are the records of a long lost community of people called the Essenes. <clears throat> Essenes. They were a sect of Judaism that lived around the time of Jesus. These scrolls, it turns out, were written sometime between 200 BC and 1 BC. So over 200 years, this community was writing these scrolls. They included all of the books of the Old Testament that we have today, except for Esther. They have a whole bunch of additional writings as well, all kinds of stuff from antiquity. And this is an important part. When scholars looked at the writing of the Old Testament books that they had, they were very similar to the Old Testament translations that we have today. So I want you to remember that, that over 2,000 years, the amount of fidelity that has gone into keeping this book accurate is remarkable. It's unequaled in history. Some of the writings that were there had all kinds of stuff that elaborated on stuff from the Bible. It turns out that Nahash was one of the people that is written about in the Dead Sea Scrolls in more detail. It turns out that during this period, Nahash and his buddies were going around to a lot of the different cities here on the other side of the Jordan, gouging out the eyes of all of the people in the different cities that they were conquering. Now, that tells me that when he came to this town and he threatened to gouge their eyes out, they knew he was serious because they knew he was already doing that. I just want you to, to keep in mind that the Dead Sea Scrolls are a wealth of knowledge for us from the past, and they have so much information that it can help shed light on some of this. Now, the other thing I want to... Now, that's it. That's the, okay, I digress. I want you to look at verse 7. He took a pair of boxes, he cut them up. That's the fun part. This is what will be done. This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow who? Saul and Samuel. Why didn't he just say Saul? Because Samuel was still kind of the guy. Yes! And he yes! also warned them that yes. this was coming. Yes! Dude, this is going to happen. Samuel's not going to be the guy after this. This is exactly it. Saul you knows have, he doesn't have enough cachet himself. He's I like, think this is it. <clears throat> they're not going to follow me, but if I add Samuel to it, that's now, it. That's you know. it. Yep. Well, Samuel adds some legitimacy to it. And this is the it. The purpose yep. of gathering together and forming an army. Seemed to be effective. Uh, yeah. And I want to talk about that for a minute. How many people came out to fight? 330,000 yeah. men. Fighting I want you. Men. Fighting men. I want you to keep in mind that at least a few years ago, and this could have changed, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, the, standing, the size of the standing army of the United States, meaning the number of military personnel who are in a fighting condition and are actively serving, is only about one to two million people. Think about how many people are on the earth and how many Americans there are today, 300 million Americans plus, and we have a standing army of about one to two million people. How many is 300,000 people back then? A lot. Staggering. It's staggering. It would be as if we had a 30 million man <clears throat> army standing, at least for the United States. Think of how many people that is. At least, and probably more, because the whole population 
of this whole region couldn't have been more than a million people, folks. It couldn't have been. It couldn't have even been close. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> so that is remarkably successful to call those people together. One thing, one question I yeah. is, I mean, obviously the 12 brothers are no longer around anymore, but wouldn't you think you'd go talk to your 12 former brothers' yeah. families, say, hey, we need to fight the Ammonites here. Yeah. Now, they did end up going to Saul at the end mm -hmm. to help, and then, and then Saul then got armies from the 12 tribes, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask, and this is gonna sound bad. <clears throat> it's gonna sound horrible. How many people have seen The Godfather from from the 1970s? Okay, it, one of the best movies ever. <laughs> However, I digress. If you've seen it, or how many have read the book? The book is equally good. Um, I think you have to think about these tribal, and you don't have to admit it if you have. Uh, I think you have to think about these tribal leaders here as somewhat like the heads of the families of, and, and, I, and I don't want to call it the mafia because it's, they are not a mafia. However, I think you have to think about this as each head of each family is looking out for his own self-interest. Think of it that way. In which I have my land, I have to keep my people happy. I, you know, My number one goal is to keep the people of the tribe of Manasseh happy and fed and safe and secure. I know, Ephraim, you got a lot of problems going on, dude, but I got my own problems. And in, the, and in the movie, they have this great part with the meeting of the five families, where um, Vito Corleone has to call a, a meeting to, to kind of call the peace, right, and get everyone to get on the same page. Now, eventually he betrays them all, and that's not what happens here. Uh, there's a whole different thing. Uh, but, but I think you have to think about this, that it really is kind of every man for himself at this period, and that's the problem. And I think they're not even organized enough yeah. to, like, I don't even know that Manasseh really has someone who's kind of in charge of Manasseh. Yeah. It's more just like... I mean, you would have elders, don't get me wrong, you do have tribal elders, and they, they really are kind of the older people who are calling the shots, but it's true that you don't have one leader who's strong enough to kind of do everything. And so this loose confederate, this continues to be the problem here. Is that partly why they want a king? I mean, it doesn't say, yes. but it, it sounds like there's not an organization yes. of a leader. Tim, I would say it's, the, it's one of the number one reasons. It's chaos. This story, though, is an indicator that what they really want is to do their own thing. Yeah. Because that's in it. spite of being given a king, they still don't want that one. Yeah. Right? I it's like, dude, I gave it to you. It's interesting how they say 300,000 mm -hmm. from the 11 tribes and 30,000 from Judah. They single Judah out. They singled Israel out, too. What does that tell you, Steve, about when this was written? Well, Judah would have been oh, yeah. probably the largest of the tribes and probably the most powerful. So that part, to me, makes makes some sense why they would be singled out. Plus, you know, the line of most of Israel's kings came from Judah. But what do you notice about, they didn't say the 12 tribes, they mm -hmm. said Israel. What do we know is going to happen around about 920? 930 BC. Yes, this is another indication for the young people here today that you can find clues as to when certain texts have been written based on what's written in them. There was no northern kingdom of Israel in 1020 BC. There just wasn't. There was 12 tribes, including Judah. The author, or at least editor, 
of this verse has singled out the men of Israel, numbered 300,000, the men of Judah, 30. That is a clear indication that that verse was written here. So what he's really saying is that the men of Israel, the men of, there were 10 tribes with 300,000 yeah. and two tribes with, okay. Basically, yeah. Ju- Judah and Benjamin would be considered Judah. Hmm. Now it's a minor thing. Um, obviously, later we'll read about Samuel's death, and he didn't write about his own death. Um, <clears throat> at least I don't think he did. Um, and so it's just something to keep in mind. Let's go on. Any other comments about chapter 11 before we move on? But once Saul gets his, like, gets the Holy Spirit, he really yeah. does the right. Like, in this yeah. chapter, he starts off on a good foot. Yeah. <laughs> he does. He does start, because they, you know... It's funny how they're just so quick to form a mob. Like they're like, yes, who doesn't want Saul? Like we didn't want Saul. Burn their house down. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Bring it, everybody who didn't want Saul and kill him. You know, but Saul is like, no, like he has reason and like wisdom, and he's like, no, let's just all be a happy family. What did Gideon do? You remember Gideon the judge? He was empowered by God to defeat um, the Moabites, no, the Midianites. And after he did that, what did he do? When he had secured victory, Gideon did what? Did he lay down his arms and say, okay, let's all live in peace? He chased him like he kept 30 miles. Going. Like, like, he chased him <coughs> really far away. Kept going. And I think you can, you can be sure that the, the memory of things like Gideon is still fresh on the minds of the Israelites. We had leaders before us who not only did what God did, told them to do, but then kept going. They went way too far with their power. I think you're right, Laura. I think this is an indication that Saul does have a spirit of justice in him. That, that is just as important as a spirit of military ability to conquest here. His ability to forgive and just let it go. That seems to have done a good job, actually, in bringing them together. Okay. Let's do chapter 12. It's a little long, but I believe in you guys. Angela's read like 16 verses before, so this is nothing. I've put in my time. And you have. That's right. Who wants to read all of chapter 12 for me today? I can. Thank you. You can do it. Yeah. And Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord, before he, and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in his place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them to their hand of 
Caesarea, commander of the army of Hazar, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, so that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal. Jer- 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 Who is that another name for, by the way? Who remembers? Don't look in your footnote. Gideon. Gideon. And Barak. And Jif. Worse. <laughs> Jephthah and Samuel delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the king your God was when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the kingdom whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold the Lord has set a king for you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey your vo- obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then a hand of the Lord sh- will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking yourselves, like, asking for yourselves king. But Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from the following, from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit for, or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for, the, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Always fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Thank you. Thoughts, <clears throat> reactions. I love the last verse. Because the king isn't going to matter. You still do wicked stuff, you still get to go away. And do they? Absolutely. The period of the monarchy of Israel and Judah lasts in the north, there'll be a split, around 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel, which is 10 tribes, gets completely obliterated by the Assyrian Empire. The refugees are carted off to Lord knows where, never to be heard from again, a remnant remains, and that's a whole different story, but essentially that that kingdom is completely gone, lost to history. In 586, 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin is completely obliterated by the Babylonian Empire. And there, um, most of the people are either killed or carted off to other lands. The kingdom 
ends. The, the line of David ends, at least at that point, on earth in 586 BC. So it happened. And Samuel wasn't kidding. What else? I like how Samuel starts off here by saying, you asked for it. I, you know, I'm, I appointed the king. My kids are following the king now. And my hands are clean. Um, you know, you, <laughs> it's on you. Here you go. I mean, he just cleans it out. I, I, I kind of expected when I was reading that that Samuel was going to die somewhere in this chapter because it's kind of like that last. Like, it's kind of like the it's like I'm on the boat and I'm going away to you know the, the new the new land and I'll see you. He has one more king to anoint, so his job is not quite done yet. It's funny that he brings up his sons because they're wicked. Yeah. So, and then he's talking about how, mm-hmm. how unwicked he is, mm-hmm. but it's like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's I, like, if you, have, if you have reason not to trust me in this, yeah. tell me now. Yeah. I kind of like this. I kind of like this public display in some ways of, hey, if you've got something against me, then let me know. What have I done against you? Um, in, the, in the presence of public witnesses. <laughs> it's not anonymous. And it's not backdoor stuff. It's in public. If you have a problem with me, bring it out and we'll talk about it. <clears throat> you don't see that humility in leadership much. Not a whole not, lot. Well, not at, a, at this high level, right. at least. Right. Can you imagine if our current president or any of the past you know, few were to get out in front of everyone in front of a mob of just random people? All right, if I've done something wrong, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Things being thrown. <clears throat> well, it's, it's attributed as weakness. Either. Yep. That's it. That's it. That's it. Well, I, I see this as great strength. He's willing to stand this up there and go, great. hey, if I've defrauded you in any way, like, now's your time to tell me. I don't think I would ask that question. <laughs> of the public, at least. You know. and I've, Twitter. I've had opportunity to ask my children that. Yeah. And that is a very humbling Well, experience. it's like, be careful what you ask for again, right? You might hear some truth. Mm-hmm. It might cut. So, just a few points here. Is it not the wheat harvest now? The wheat harvest, like I said, that's going to be early summer. Okay. Um, The Mediterranean climate is nothing like Iowa. Uh, In Israel, if you've ever lived in California, this is a California climate as well. It rains in the winter. It rains sometime between December and March is when they get 99, 95% of their rain. And that's when they start to grow things. And the climate here is also, especially in the Judean hills, it's not going to freeze every night. So some, somewhere around February, March, you can start planting your crops. And by May, June, they're ready. The wheat is at least <coughs> ready. Um, there should not be a cloud in the sky in June in Israel. So, Amy, you can kind of see where this went. He, what did Samuel call upon? Thunderstorm. There should not be a thunderstorm, and a thunderstorm happened that very day. So if I were to go out in May, you know, in Iowa, and call upon the thunderstorm, there's a pretty good chance you might get one. Uh, it should not happen here. It's like January for us having a big thunderstorm or something. 
And it's like <coughs> Bale is the one that is always tripping them up. Ooh, so the good. fact that Samuel is showing that it, that God can call upon rain in the middle of the summer. Can we talk about that he real quick? Is yeah. God, not Baal. You mentioned the 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 people needed to turn away from their idols, the Baals and the Ashtaroths or Ashtaras. Baal is what kind of Canaanite god? Was kind he of the god of thunder. Yes, dude, this is the original Thor, <laughs> god of thunder, lightning. This is the original Thor. These are who the Canaanites thought controlled the rains and the thunderstorms. Um, Ashtoreth was also called what? Who, who is she in Canaanite myth? Fertility. Fertility goddess, but more specifically, uh, and, and that's fine, we can say that. Um, <coughs> fertility. Who was she supposed to be the consort of? Or the wife of? Was it Baal or no? God? God. The Canaanites said Ashtara was God's wife. The queen of heaven. The wife of El. So, mind blown, right? Of course they're dead wrong about both. So I want to get at this. Why did, he just mentioned in this very, I think it was this chapter about the Baals or the one right before it, you're following the Baals and the Ashtras. I am going to now call upon the storms in the middle of summer when this guy can't do crap. Call upon the storms all you want, Baal. Hey, Baal, make it rain. It's June. Nothing. Not a cloud in the sky. What is Samuel demonstrating here? He puts together this whole big reminder of who God is. When you follow him, yep. he's for you. When you don't, look out. And who doesn't have power in Canaan? All of the other false gods. <laughs> who does have power? God. God himself, Jehovah, Yahweh. And I like how he's like, you will know what an evil thing you've done when you see this rain coming. <laughs> it's so good, dude. It's so good. Anointed one. The anoint who is the anointed one here? This is a good one. Saul is, right? Saul. Folks. And Saul only has power if God gives it to him. Who anoints him? Samuel. God, through Samuel. Yeah. Folks. They are not magical objects. They are not gods. Remember, in this period in history. A lot of these people who had kings, those kings said they were God, right? So that's a big thing that God, Yahweh, is trying to say here. Your king is not God. I'm the one that gives him power. I let my spirit come upon him in power, and only then did he have the power to do this. Samuel did not conjure up the storm. Samuel did what? He called God, and God did it. And he made a point of that. Samuel is not magic. He is not the, the all-powerful one. The anointed one was anointed by God. And the anointed one is another name for what in the New Testament? Messiah. Messiah. This is what Messiah means. Messiah means the anointed one. Now, in Hebrew, it's, it's like Mashiach. And I'm not a Hebrew expert. I think it's Mashiach. Um, there's a noun and there's a verb. Mashiach is where we get Messiah. It means the one who is anointed with oil. Here it means the king. Who is our king as Christians? God. Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. Christ meaning the anointed one, Christos. 
What else? What else do you guys take from this? Well, like in verse 23, and maybe I'm jumping too far yep. ahead, um, where Samuel really points out or demonstrates that it's a sin not to be praying. Ah. Kind of rewording and inferring there. Mm -hmm. But it's a sin not to pray for others. And so he's saying, I'm not going to sin, so I'm going to keep praying for you, and I'm going to keep teaching you God's ways. So nice. to me, it seems like, well, that I infer that that's, it's a sin not to do those two things. Okay. He may also be saying, he's reassuring yep. him that, look, I'm not, I'm not going away here. That's, I was, you're right. I think you're right. I, absolutely right. I think he's also kind of reminding them, I still have something to give you. Um, I still, you have stuff to learn from me. So I'm not going to just, you know, be some nobody. Because, and I think it's a very important reason why it's in there. Because he's prepping it for David. He's prepping it for just, just a few chapters from now. We will talk about God, and I said that, I'm going to back up. I said last week, be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. Why was Saul the first king of Israel? And I'll ask you all that. Why Saul? Obscurity. It's obscure. Okay. So he cha maybe challenged challenged their conception of what a king should be. Yeah, nobody, I like that. Nobody knew him. Okay. Well, didn't a couple of weeks ago we discussed that in their mm -hmm. minds he would have looked exactly like what I mean, like he's a big dude. Ah. He's you know, tall, dark, and yes, he you know. looked. His head and shoulders taller than everyone else looked like a king. And what did they eventually figure out? Like a Steve Cruz. Yeah. Steve <laughs> oh, that's it. Clearly. He didn't have the, the strategy part, right? of the king that they wanted. Yeah. Wasn't a, wasn't a king. But, but he lacked, he lacked the, the, the character. And, and, and look, I'm just going to give it away. He looked like a king. He lacked the character of a king. It, it, for some degree. Not, not completely. He liked the humility that God wanted in a king. He generally lacked, yeah, he That's eventually what David completely had lacked that you humility. Didn't have. You know, yep. once Saul took the mantle of being king, yeah. all his humility fell away. And he felt like he had earned being yep. king. And he didn't want mm -hmm. David to take that away from him. <coughs> Whereas well, David was. Look, look what happened first for him. He's like, you know, the Spirit of the Lord came on him. He killed his ox. He sent him sent pieces out to everywhere. Yeah. He's like, I got it. Look at this. <laughs> look at me. <laughs> it's true. That's pretty kingly right there. All I gotta do that is, is. That is pretty kingly. It's like, dude, I'm exactly going to get some gold shoes now. For, which yeah. is what they were looking for. He did exactly what they were looking for. But I would let all that power go to my head. You know, I was going to say, I don't see anything that Saul did that I probably wouldn't fall into. Yep. Either. It'd be so easy. You but why? You yourself all I pretty do easy. Is hamburger and send out. Yeah. And I think, we've all, you know, I think we're all on the right path here that Saul was who we think he was. But I still come back to, why was it Saul that was first? Why not David first? What is God telling the people of Israel here? That it's not the king. What was that? I was just like, I don't know. I've always <laughs> wondered, like, it why was Saul first? It doesn't matter who I appoint. Let me, it yeah. doesn't matter if it's a Republican <laughs> or Democrat. Ah, that's, okay. That's it. Okay. It doesn't matter. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I think you're onto it. I, it doesn't matter... Who it is. I, I think that's um, actually the king it. It's not going to maybe look like who you expect. Yeah. Or who you, you know, it's not mm -hmm. stereotypical. 
gray-haired guy. I think that's it. I think you're onto it. He's kind of like Saul. What I think of Saul as king, he's like a typical human. Like, like we were all saying, like if we were king, we would probably fall into the same traps of like getting, you know, drunk with power and you know not yep. being humble. And yep. like David was, he's like. 99 out of 100 kings are going to be like Saul, and only one out of 100 are going to be like David, right? Because most people can't help themselves from falling into all the It's kind of traps. funny because if you read about the kings of Israel and Judah through the, the you know, essentially the, the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, every king is either all in for God or all in, you know, for wickedness. But they're never, ever again like Saul. A guy that just kind of was like, meh, meh. <laughs> <laughs> John had his hand raised, and I've got to give you a chance to say what you want to say. Uh, Saul did what like people expected a king to be like, while David did what they needed. Ooh, this is so good. He was a populist? No, no, never mind. <laughs> did what the people... This is excellent. Thought a king should do. Now, I'm going to... I think these are all right. And, and I agree, and I've actually learned something, because I think this idea of challenging stereotypes, I hadn't thought of that before, but I think that's right. I think God wanted to challenge stereotypes. I'm going to rewind just a little bit here and talk about what the first 10 chapters of Samuel were saying. First 10 chapters of Samuel are God saying, if you ask for a king, it's not going to turn out the way you think it's going to turn out. You have a thought about what you think the king should do and it's not going to turn out that way. I, in my heart, and this is, again, my interpretation of it, I feel God decided the very first king was going to be a response to what he had just been saying for the last 10 weeks. It's not going to work out. You're not going to like who's your king. It's not going to go well for you. Fine. Here's your king. <laughs> and he gave him Saul. For that, I believe, for that very reason. But to prep for the future. And I think that's, uh, maybe Steve was kind of alluding to that. I think this is, this is exactly what's happening. You know, it's kind of like you got nowhere to go but up. <laughs> I, I believe in my heart God had Saul be the king to kind of reset everything about what the expectations of the Israelites thought a king should be. He kind of started them back, took them out of the clouds, took them out of la-la land and said, no, this is the reality of, of, of a monarchy they're going to they're gonna have a few decades of Saul as king here to learn that very harsh lesson. So I think that's why Saul was there. And I think you're all right. I think you were all onto it. Why was David the second king of Israel? I don't know. I just keep going back to there's this, and I can't really explain it, but there's this mm -hmm. idea that the Jews hold that the first is the natural and the second is the spiritual mm. and it, if you look back to like it, it's all throughout the bible but for example uh who is it jacob and esau esau should have been the one mm. but he naturally screwed it i up. see what you're getting at i see what you're getting at that's a good Joseph point actually reuben <coughs> uh, should have had it he screwed it up joseph got it, it i mean there's doesn't i mean there's quite a few examples of the Manassas, yep. uh, Jacob crossed his arms, mm -hmm. the first ones, you know. I love what you're getting at, Jeremy, and I love this because you're absolutely right. In, in the spirit of the Old Testament, especially the Deuteronomic history and the, and the Torah, 
the authors make a point that it was not the firstborn that got the blessing. It was often a, a later son who ended up inheriting everything. There could be some, something there here too. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this statement. Why Saul? To show what a king usually is. Why David? To show what a real king should be. Well, the people still, <clears throat> after 30 years of yep. Saul or whatever, still thought that's what they needed. Yeah. They were still asking for the same thing. Yeah. David was after God's heart, too. David was after God's own heart. Well, I want to, I want to chase yep. both of those mm -hmm. with Jeremy. What Jeremy said there, yep. that the kingdom then is to the people who would chase God, not to the, pe not to the person who... Oh gosh, now I don't know how I want to say it. It's, it's not it's not to that physical aspect, right? Okay. It's that spiritual aspect. And it has yep. nothing to do with with your lineage and your. It has everything to do with your attitude in front of God. Like, are you chasing Him? Mm -hmm. That's that's the kingdom belongs to those people. It's that spirit of I repentance. Kind of, Anytime kind of anything that, good ever yeah. happened. It was a result of repentance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks for coming in and rescuing me there, Steve. I appreciate that. Uh, well, I was just kind of thinking that, like, usually it was, like, one of the descendants of the king that became the next king, but it's yeah. God chose another, like, nobody who wasn't... This is great. Even further than a nobody. I mean, this is yeah. a little, the runt of a nobody. shepherd boy yep. out yeah. in the wilderness somewhere. Who wasn't even... Last like, in his own family. Yeah. Verse 22 talks, it says that the, for the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. That's what I read there is that he's, he's just not going to give up on us no matter what, no matter how dumb we are and how much we ask for this and that. He just doesn't give up on us. And I, so yep. David came along as a Another reminder. I like this. I'm still, I'm still working for you, Israel. Even though, I mean, it goes through the big, you know, you've done this. God continues to bless us. God. And who is David going to be the archetype for? If I say that David is the model for who a king should be, who is the ultimate example of that? Jesus. David is prepping us for Jesus, our Messiah. The, he is our king. Make no mistake about it. He is our king. But David is the earthly archetype for that, to prep them. We'll start with the bottom, <coughs> not your, not your sky-high expectations of what it should be. I'm going to show you. The human has nothing to do with it. The human being is just the person I put on the throne, who I empower with the Spirit of God. But there is one coming, eventually, who will be the spirit of a king who should lead you, who is, in fact just as much a deity as he is a human being. Okay. I want to say that, that Saul and the way he was had as much to do with that. Maybe in yeah. an Ebonics type of way. Kind of the antidote of what Jesus, I mean let me show you what it shouldn't be. Let me show you what it should be. Yes. Because that's what we need. Yes. We gotta, unfortunately we have to see, we have to experience the bad and, and the good to say, oh I like the good a little better. I like that. 
sometimes knowing what something isn't can help us understand what it is in another way of saying. All right, thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next week.